Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. This is Radio Marinara. We're the program about all things wet and salty. Good morning to you. My name is Bron Burton. And from the interchange bench, it's uh, the cabin boy. <laughs> hey, hey. Uh, go Megahertz. I just thought I'd get that little footy reference in. So, um, fam's sick. Not yeah, well? Yeah, fam, oh. she's sick. So, yeah, big love to you, fam, if you're listening. Uh, she's she's fallen to the lurgy that is doing the rounds. It is doing the rounds. One of several. Well, I know, a few people struck down with flu and COVID and some mystery virus thing, and it's just, it's all out there at the just moment. Just don't get together, stay home. Yeah. yeah. Or get out on the water. It's safer out there, isn't it? Yeah. Or get to Victoria Park. Oh, I didn't want to mention that. <laughs> hey, should we do a big shout out to Carby too? He's in yeah, hospital and he, uh, he's massive. not turning up today. So, uh, yeah, you know you've made it on the Melbourne music scene when uh, Carby turns up to your gig. So if you're wondering who Carby is, Carby Wabi, who is a photographer extraordinaire. And if, you, if you've seen a photo with a digital image of a little chicken on it, that's um, that's Carby. <laughs> and you almost, you're probably right out there going now, oh, right, yeah, I know that. I know those photos. Or I know that guy. Just about any photo of any band, international or Melbourne. Or footy cards. Yes. Indeed. The awesome footy cards. Five bucks a pack. Get them. They'll sell out quickly. Yeah. Hey, we better do our show. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, and Merida, amazing live wire last night. Uh, Another community cup edition. Um, And uh, thank you very much to Tim because I was about to – I was not going to neglect thanking Tim very much for Vital Bits today and yesterday and uh, Andrew for Softball Bits. Steph for things to do today. We think it was Zorin doing the Rising Diaries. We think we we had a bit of a stab at that. If it wasn't Zorin, thank you to whoever you are who did it. All right, uh, massive show to get through today before uh, Cabin Boy and I hop in the mega mobile and um, <laughs> zoom our way down to Victoria Park. I'm going to go through the lineup of that in a minute. We've got Ben Francis Shelley actually all ready to speak with us uh, about some really super cool ancient dino bird, Pelagornis, I think is how you pronounce it. I don't know, I get this wrong every time, but we'll ask Ben in a minute. Um, discovered by an expert local diver only a couple of weeks ago. So Ben's going to talk a bit about that. There's an in, uh, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to steal his thunder. Talk about all of this. Um, it will be thunder too. Yes, and also very exciting uh, event coming up soon, which um, Ben is going to tell us about as well. Then we're going to cross to speak with Dave Donnelly from the Dolphin Research Institute about what's happening with the whale migration season. It's commenced. Whale watching has commenced as well. And uh, we're going to be catching up with Dave every two weeks from now until uh, the whales basically head back down to Antarctica. Mm -hmm. Um, But Dave's also going to be telling us about a very exciting festival happening next weekend at Phillip Island, which happens every year. So we'll catch up with him about that. Then uh, Dr. Elodie Campras will be talking to us about the report we've been waiting for. Yes. This is Deakin University's 12-month study. It's called Giant Spider Crab Ecological Assessment in Port Phillip Bay. So we uh, had a bit of a chat with Elodie about that a couple of weeks ago, but the report hadn't been released. It now has been. And it's the first published study into the ecology and habitat use of the bay's spider crabs. Um covering 12 months of observations and data, so super cool stuff. That's fantastic because there's been so many sightings, so we know where they – well, we don't know where they are, but people know where they are, but now we're looking further into them, aren't we? Yeah. So that's fantastic. It's really cool. And then to close the show, we are going to be very excited to speak with Mick Sauer. We haven't spoken with Mick for a while. He is the creative director of Great Ocean Quarterly. Now, if you wanted to picture Radio Marinara in print, Cabin Boy – 
Yes, you told me about this. Yes, it would be great, Ocean Quarterly. Um, so they're putting another edition together and focusing on the magnificence of the Great Southern Reef, working together with the Great Southern Reef Foundation. So we'll speak with Mick about this new upcoming edition and what it involves and uh, how you can get yourself a copy. Fantastic. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Um. All right, a couple of quick bits of news. One, uh, just a big shout-out to um, Tim Winton, um, who is yeah. the we'll, – we'll just call him the patron of Radio Marinara. He's, we'll just call him Tim. Yeah. <laughs> our mate Tim. Uh, he was uh, given an AO this week as um, part of the annual birthday honours. Um, and, uh, yeah, good is on Is that from Tim. the king, not the queen anymore? So he's got it from the king. Yeah. Wow, that's different. If you buy into all that stuff. We were not going there. <laughs> <laughs> I will read this out, Nerida, because um, I think you'll you will like this. Winton loves the country, proud to call himself a patriot. You don't have to be in khaki or carry a gun to be a patriot. I see patriots every day in board shorts, business suits, tracky dacks and double pluggers. They've got dreadlocks, <laughs> they're pushing prams, walking frames, holding guitars in a classroom, hospital wards and workshops, storerooms. Nobody is above their country. The role of the patriot, as he sees it, is to defend the prospects of those who come after us. So it's all about protecting the future. Uh, and uh, there's another comment when I wanted, which I wanted to mention is um, the reporter of the article that I'm reading uh, was, you know, about his new series, Ningaloo Ningaloo, which we've talked a lot about on mm. this program. But he uh, doesn't wax lyrical about his encounters with orcas or dugongs. Instead, he talks about traditional owners of the land being there for the return to country, being able to show people's return to positions of respect, legal and moral authority over their own lands and waters. Yeah. So good stuff. Using his, um, well, his uh, fame and notoriety for good things. Exactly. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Without further ado, we're just going to go straight to Ben Francis Shelley, Radio Marinara's own coastal paleontologist. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. It's always awesome being here. Thank you for having me. It's always an absolute joy to have you with us, especially when uh, Skype works. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's launch straight in. There's this mystery discovery. I sort of tried to keep it as vague as I possibly could. We've alluded to this a few weeks ago when we had you on the show, but there's been some developments about this special ancient dino bird. Yes, absolutely. So a couple of weeks ago, I got a call from my friend Steve Kuta, who's an expert diver. And he's messaging me and he's going, Ben, have you checked the group chat? Have you checked the messages that are on? And I'm like, no, I haven't checked any <laughs> messages whatsoever. And he's like, just go go to Facebook, go check the messenger because we've got a group chat with all these citizen scientists and fossil hunters that look for this stuff. And I scroll down past all the comments going, wow, oh, my God, I can't believe you found this. This is amazing to the image of this long cylindrical black bone of about 60 centimetres in length. And I go... All right, all right, all right. It's pretty amazing. (laughs) I mean, you can assume what it is, right, Bron? Well, I know what it is because you've already told me. How about you, Kevin Boy? No, I don't know. Don't keep us waiting. Come on. So it was the humerus, the upper arm bone of the largest flying bird that ever existed. So it was a really tremendous find. It's about five and a half million years of age. 
And he's calling me up and he's saying, I'm bringing it over to you right now so you can consolidate it. Because unfortunately, in the process of finding it, it had broken up into five parts. But that's okay because they were clean breaks all the way through. And what most people don't understand with fossils is that in order to find the fossils, in most cases, you need to break them and mm. then glue them back up later on anyway. Superglue is our friend. And so we brought them over and we consolidated them. We put them in fresh water to get the excess salt out of them. And it's it's an amazing discovery but he said to me as well ben i think there's more underneath the waves <gasps> as well Ooh. okay yeah so we went back the next day and we were like okay it was the saturday you know i was sitting down writing reports at my desk you know making sure that things had happened and, you know getting everything in on time that kind of thing when he had actually messaged me and i was like i can't deal with this right now but i will deal with it <laughs> immediately after don't worry and we get down there, we, we create a little bit of a task force of us all heading down there in the hope that we're going to go to the exact same spot where he found this giant bird humerus of over 5 million years of age because there might be more. Wow. But unfortunately, <laughs> it had rained the day before and the clarity was absolutely abhorrent and you couldn't see any more than three metres ahead of you. And he was in about five and a half metres of water when he found the specimen anyway. So... <gasps> Uh, we, so we tried our best to relocate the rest of the stuff. If there was anything, it was hard to say. He had this amazing GPS watch, Steve, that was enabling him to get back to exactly the same spot. But we did find other things Ooh. on the day as well. Are you allowed to tell Should us Should I that? divulge? Yeah, well. let, let's go. Let's go. We're so excited. Can you tell? So we get down there and uh, a number of scuba divers are around us and we're looking around, you know, we're getting to about six metres of depth at that time. And they come across this gigantic long chunk of bone cemented into the platform at the bottom of the seafloor. It's a giant baleen whale joint. It's about two and a half metres in length. Again, five million years old, this is only, and which just, was really This is only a couple of years, a couple of weeks ago, Ben, correct? This was only a couple of weeks ago, wow. correct. And in Port Phillip Bay, this is the thing that's really blowing my mind. Nerida? Well, I have two questions now that you've brought up that it's Port Phillip Bay. Has this got anything to do with the dredging that's brought things to the uh, surface? And secondly, oh, now I've got three questions. Oh, no. Baleen whales, are they, are they still <laughs> around? And also my third question is about the, while, I've got, while I'm on air, um, taking the fossils out of the salt environment and and leaching the salt out of them, how, um, what's, if they've been there for five and a half million years and they've been sort of unaffected, and I say that in air quotes, unaffected by the salt, won't, what, what's the effect of doing what you do? Okay, so the first thing, the dredging is in no way affecting anything that's happening with the fossils. These fossils have been around for a really long time and just no one has come across them at all. So we found that site, which is called Black Rock, or we nicknamed it Site B, and hid it from the public for about five years until we actually released a paper explaining what it was for the first time last year. And it's an absolute treasure trove of amazing fossils that citizen scientists have helped pull together, placing those specimens into the state collection as well. What was the second question again? It was it was about... whales, aren't they still around or are they not? Yeah, no, they are. And quite surprisingly, they were much, much smaller than what we could find today as well. So they seem to be the perfect um, bantha fodder, the food for the megalodon in size. But what's also really intriguing is that from this site, we find the first evidence of hypergigantism in baleen whales at a time where we're not expecting it. So they start to mm -hmm. get to these absolute chunky, you know, 30-metre sizes 
in Bayside for the first time anywhere in the world from the fossil evidence that we can find. And with the third one, these fossils have probably only just been shown up on the, on the bottom of the seafloor. They're usually covered by sand. There's other erosional activity that actually brings them up to the surface itself. So it's really tricky to know exactly how long they've been exposed to the seawater for. In that time, little tiny little salt crystals can accrete. And when you bring them back up out to the air itself, those salt crystals can propagate. So you've got to make sure you actually put it into fresh water to leach the salt out. So that way, when the salt crystals do propagate, they don't actually expand in any of the pores mm. of the bone and destroy the bone and explode the bone. That's happened once before uh, to a specimen that we collected from Jan Juk, unfortunately. We didn't realize just how salty the specimen had gotten. When we left it overnight, we came back into the lab. It had just completely wrecked the specimen. Aww. So it's always a consideration. And that was when I was first doing this work and started thinking, oh, my, I, I didn't know any better. But we know better now. And so I know to put everything in fresh water and keep it in there for a couple of weeks at the very least and change the water around and around. Ben, this sounds like a Marvel movie script. Are you really a superhero? Like, you know, you're sitting around <laughs> and suddenly you get the call, you're out and you're in the water and you're finding all this great stuff. My God. I mean... I, there's there's even more fossils that were found just yeah. uh, last week as well. There was an, another megalodon tooth that surfaced as huh. well that somebody found. There was another segment of jaw from a baleen whale that had these amazing marks all over them, predatory marks from a shark that had bitten down into the jaws as it was trying to eat away at its flesh wow. over five million years ago. <laughs> What people don't quite get is just how amazing these fossil sites actually are and the breadth and the amazing amounts that we have, not just in Bayside, but all across Melbourne, through the Ballerine Peninsula, through the Surf Coast, through the Western Districts. They're there, but unfortunately, the experts that are required to study them aren't mm. because yeah. the, the available funding just isn't there. Well, this, this work that you do, Ben, and particularly publishing these reports is absolutely critical because for, for any other reason, it keeps the developers at bay because what we're actually really demonstrating <laughs> is, you know, this is the evidence that's re been required to, uh, to, to put up to would-be developers to say, uh, uh sorry, you can't touch this. This is absolutely critical evidence uh, area. This is the area that provides the evidence that, that we need for this fossil record. Yeah, I mean, these specimens are literally just getting smashed on the bottom of the sea floor every now and again by the, the ebb and the flow of the tide. So we have to go out there and collect them. And this is the heritage of Melbourne as we know it. This yeah. is a really important evolutionary part of the record of life itself. If you go to the Facebook page, our Radio Marinara Facebook page, you'll see the, the actual humorous bone that we're talking about um, is up there. Um, so you can, you can take a look at that for yourself. We've got about two minutes left, Ben. Um, you have an exciting announcement about something that's coming up. I, uh, I do. It's really exciting. So about a year and a half ago, I got into contact with Bayside City Gallery, uh, sorry, Bayside Gallery and Bayside City Council and suggested an idea with them. The idea was to create an exhibition on the fossils. They came to the table and they said, let's do it. Let's create an exhibition. Let's create prehistoric Bayside. And I was like, that's going to be absolutely amazing. So it's going to happen in June 2024. And I'm going to be compiling some of the most amazing fossils that have been discovered by the citizen scientists, creating paleo art alongside of it. You're going to be able to go into the Bayside Gallery, which is located in Brighton, and experience why these areas are some of the most important fossil localities in the entire world. Brilliant. Wow. I've been to that gallery. It's gorgeous. Looking it's an amazing space with so much potential as well. But, yeah. yeah, I can't wait to actually create the artwork as well and collaborate with those artists because there's just so much we still don't know. So getting to hear their expertise and try and 
intertwine their knowledge is going to be absolutely amazing to do you, and then show that off to the public is going to be even better. Are you calling out for artists or you're, you're, it's all set? Oh, I've got a few artists yeah. in mind, but if uh, there are other artists that are out there, they're more than welcome to come and contact me as well. What's the best way they can contact you, Ben? They can go find me on the socials. I call myself a fool's experiment, A <laughs> underscore fool's underscore experiment, because I'm the fool and this is all my experiments. I created it when I was like You are a superhero. Something like that. I'm such a fool. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, can't get past it. But I always, it was actually a quote by Charles Darwin, uh, and he was referring to himself uh, in, in re- reference to evolution as well. And I absolutely love the fact that he called himself a fool, despite being the world expert on, pain, on everything, paleontology and evolution mm. as well. So I thought that resonates, you know, being a fool. I love that. Yeah, yeah brilliant. Cool. We've put links to your page on our page before, but we'll do so again. Um, might have to give me till tomorrow after the Community Cup's all over, but um, we will put that That's link. Fine. But if you go to the Radio Marinara page and search for uh, really your name or a fool's experiment, you'll, you'll find that link anyway. Thanks, Ben. Good Thank stuff. you so much for having me. So have a great exciting. day today, guys. Yeah, Ciao. thanks. You too. Catch you, Catch you next time. Ben Francis Shelley there, our My coastal God. paleontologist, doing I, great things. I reckon he's a little excited about his job. <laughs> <laughs> Who wouldn't be? Who wouldn't be? I would be too. That is fantastic. Triple R. And uh, we are very excited to be crossing to speak with Dave Donnelly. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Brom and team. How are we today? We're very well, thanks. How are you? Fantastic. Beautiful sunny morning. Love it. It is. Hey, we're really excited um, to be launching this really as a fortnightly update catch up with you about whale migration because the season has begun. It certainly has begun, and it's only going to get bigger and better as the uh, the weeks go on. Then, of course, it'll get less and less as the weeks pass. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just simply because we are on a migratory corridor for humpback whales, and uh, we're fortunate enough to have a few southern right whales calling this area home for a short period of time. Yeah, like a big um, big whale spotting um, bell curve. Um, so, where are we at right now? What's happening at the moment? Well, look, we're still fairly early in the season at the moment. Um, you can go to the coastal areas and, and still spot whales right now. Um, they, they are in their sort of uh, uh, twos and threes, and you might get five or six, but um, when we hit into the peak migration season, which we closer to the sort of mid-July through to mid-August, we, we would expect that you'd see, you know, um, tens of whales uh, over the course of a day if you spend enough time. So um, that, that is humpback whales, of course. On the flip side is southern right whales who are just starting to settle along our western uh, coastlines, although we did have a southern right whale pass through the Bass Coast, Boonarong area, through to um, towards the Wilson's Prom area. So uh, we're starting to get movement of both species right now. And we're, of course, just talking about the East Coast because there's migration that happens up the West Coast of the country as well, isn't there? There certainly is, and, and that's a separate population of, uh, of humpback whales. So they, they see quite a number of animals, um, quite, quite a large number of animals compared to ours. But um, because the coastline is, is mostly uninhabited across that long, long stretch of the west coast of Australia, um, the reports tend to be isolated to populated areas. And as we all know, citizen science is really about where citizen scientists are, scientists are. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, well, certainly when it comes to whales. So um, on the east coast, a much more populated coastline, you'll see that we get a lot more um, hits in terms of uh, reporting of, of whales and, and a lot of resites too because people know where the whales are. They're going ahead of the migration to catch that same whale, the one the person before saw a couple of hours earlier. Dave, Cabin Boy here. Um, are the whales constantly on the move or do they um, hang around an area for a while? Do they hang off Phillip Island a bit or just keep moving? 
Yeah, nice to speak to you, Captain Boy. Um, yeah, that they um, they tend to do a bit of both. Mm-hmm. Mostly, they're moving across from uh, west to east across the northern part of Bass Strait and joining that east coast migration. Our area here in Bass Strait is quite unique compared to other areas in that we're having a sort of east west, uh, sorry, west east um, migration, whereas mostly uh, the whales are going north south. So they're actually joining that migratory corridor on the east coast of Australia, which means we see uh, much fewer animals. Um, probably something like maybe 10% or less of the total population. And to answer your question, yes, some do hang around, but that's typically due to productivity. So if we get a good productivity season, say off Cape Woolamai or sort of that west, uh, east coast area around the Bass Coast, you might find that animals might stay for up to, you know, four or five days. In fact, we had one animal stay for 10 days. Uh, that was confirmed by its uh, fluke identification imagery. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a bit of both. Yeah. All right, Dave, we've got about a minute left and uh, I know you really wanted to plug this big festival happening next weekend down at Phillip Island. This is the annual, uh, is it called the Phillip Island Whale Festival? Well, it's called the Island Whale Festival now. It's gone through a few morphs. Um, <laughs> it, it is actually starting on the, the Friday the 30th uh, of July, of June, sorry, um, and then we're going through to the 2nd of July, right in the middle of the school holidays. Lots and lots of activities from artistry to um uh, whale spotting, information sessions. The Dolphin Research Institute and Two Bays Whale Project will be at surf, the Surf Club at Cape Woolamai for the entire weekend, a bit of a hub there. There's another hub in Cowles and a few other activities around the place, including oh, obviously the penguins and the Nobby Centre. Um, so we're, look, we're, doing, we're putting the call out. Please come down, come and have a chat. If you'd like to find out more about whales and dolphins and how to spot them, come and see us at Cape Woolamai. And please uh, contribute to our pod watch, which, by the way, just updated recently, Podwatch, which is our citizen science um, portal, has just grown to 270% increase on oh, wow. last year's effort. So we're really happy with the engagement. Um, granted, some of those people are seeing the same whales three or four times, but it's really about the engagement and people being part of this um, this program. So thank you to everybody who's doing that, and thanks to Marinara for helping us promote it. Oh, fantastic, Dave. That's absolutely wonderful. We'll um, we'll put links to both. Pod- We've done that before, but put links to Podwatch watch on our Facebook page um, also uh, links to the Island Festival happening in two weeks and we'll catch up with you in two weeks which will actually be the final day of the festival um, to, to find out what's going on on that Sunday but meanwhile um, again give me till tomorrow after Community Cups over today but uh, if you click click on the, the image of the whale tail for today's Facebook update um, you will be able to get all the information about the Island Whale Festival. Absolutely. Live cross time, eh? Yeah. <laughs> You're looking forward to it already. Thanks, Dave. Good stuff, guys. Thanks so much for having us again, and I uh, look forward to chatting to you in two weeks' time. Pleasure, likewise. Catch you then. Thanks, Dave. Bye for now. See ya. Bye for now. Dave Donnelly there. Good yeah. stuff. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Hi, this is Tim Whitten. If you want to know what's going on in the ocean, tune in to Radio Marinara on 102.7 3RRR. You know where it is. Oh, where are the giant spider crabs? They've only arrived in dribs and drabs. They were due in June on the strawberry moon by their thousands appearing by the pier. Let's hope this year isn't fallow. May they soon festoon every bayside shallow. Next full moon high to our shores and coves. Let leptomithrax guy mighty eye come a scuttling in droves. 
Oh, yeah, Mel Webb and Kylie Morrigan there asking the question, where are the giant spider crabs? Well, it's here, friends, the report we've all been waiting for. Deakin University's 12-month study called Giant Spider Crab Ecological Assessment in Port Phillip Bay, funded by the Port Phillip Bay Fund and released just this week. It's super exciting and the first published study into the ecology and habitat use of the bay spider crabs. It uses a unique combination of citizen and traditional science to reveal the habits of spider crabs over 12 months of observation. To find out more about this whopping 79-page report and what she and her team discovered, it's a great pleasure to welcome back to Radio Marinara, Dr Elodie Campras. Good morning and congratulations, Elodie. Good morning. Thank you and thank you for having me. Our pleasure. And finally, the report is here. Yes, yes. Thank you for your patience, everybody. <laughs> I'm really, really excited to be here talking about that today. Yeah, we're excited too. Um, before we get into the guts of the report and what it means, I thought perhaps we should start to give a shout out to your collaborators and funders because there's quite a lot of them, aren't there? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, in terms of collaborators, so, you know, I do most of the talking, but there's a, there's a whole team at Deakin University who's been helping with various aspects of the project and um, Danielle Iorodiakonou has been leading the uh, traditional science activities as well, particularly. Yeah. All right, let's get into it. And um, perhaps let's start with those terms citizen science and traditional science. What do they mean and how are those methods used to generate the data that you've used? Yep, so citizen science is, you know, getting help from the community. So it's tapping into the fact that People that love the water and the bay are already out there um, potentially seeing things and not seeing things and uh, and spider crabs. And so um, because we have limited time and, and you know, limited, limited resources to spend in the marine environment it, and, and because spider crabs can be so hard to keep track of, um, it's just great to have people telling us when they see spider crabs when they're out and about in the bay. Um, so that's the citizen science aspect. And then the traditional aspect is, you know, having having divers actually doing surveys, being underwater. And, um, and yeah, so we've, we've done all different, sorry, different surveys. We've done um, tagging. We've done video surveys to estimate the numbers of crabs. We've also um, taken morphometrics, so actually measuring the spider crabs and sexing them them, which had never been done before. And uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Citizen science has come a long way. I remember it was, you know, only only really 10, 15 years ago when when people used to look at citizen science as a concept and say, well, you know, really, what, what, what can people do to contribute to science and information when they haven't had the formal training? And I guess that that's what's really changed is that that formal training can actually quite easily be provided because people are intelligent. You don't need a science degree um, to be able able to understand the, you know, the, the um, theories behind science and, and why we collect data in the way that we do. And that's been a real game changer, hasn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, yeah, again, having people, you know, looking out for particular species and it's great for spider crabs, but I naturally, for example, takes observations for just about anything. And because we know so little about our marine environment and the biodiversity within it, that, that's just such a great asset to have people, for example, in this case, turn their, their photos into data. And really there's, you know, everybody sort of can do it. Uh, but also we have another citizen science aspect in the project uh, through a Zooniverse 
uh, web page. So last year we deployed time-lapse cameras. So there were time, um, cameras that were waterproof that were taking photos every five minutes during daylight hour, and that allowed us to monitor spider crab activity. And so uh, we collected a whole bunch of images, about 66,000 of them. Um, wow. So it's just way too many for me to just analyze <laughs> on my computer. Um, so, yeah, really keen to get help from, from anybody that can just, you know, become a marine biologist for the day and, and you know, analyze and help us analyze these photos. And with this project, there are tutorials and, and example photos to follow. And, yeah, so no one needs the formal training and they can, you know, help us out and, and learn something and we've had very lovely comments from people saying that you know they landlocked they they used to dive for example one comment they used to dive and they can't anymore and they just love seeing what's out there and participating in the project as well so I guess that's very lovely to see what what other people get out of it as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, let's look at the report. It's presented in two parts. So there's an ecological assessment and a socioeconomic assessment. Let's go through them in turn. Um, and uh, part one, we've been talking about citizen science. So part one reveals habits of spider crabs through the citizen science. And we've, you've talked a little bit about iNaturalist and Zooniverse, Zooniverse and um, pre-existing data as well. So what, what, uh, what is revealed in the report through part one? Yeah, so we've had with um, the participation of citizen scientists, which I really, really want to thank um, because their help has just been invaluable. We've managed for the first time to get good data throughout an aggregation. So before that, people were putting observations, for example, on the Melbourne Facebook page. Um, Melbourne Spider Crab Facebook page, and we're saying, "Oh, I've seen spider crabs." at this site on this date, and that was great at the time, but this data, the quality is just too low to know which stage that was at at the aggregation. So we last year, the, the aggregation that happened was in St. Leonard's, so on the Bellarine Peninsula, or our own country, and we were able to get good data from the start when the aggregation started, and then really know when they, what they were doing, and when molting started, and when the aggregation sort of ended. So that was a month of observation, so about starting 20. Uh, sorry, 21st of May, all the way to about 22nd of June. So we got good uh, observation throughout. That was, yeah, that, that's the first time that we were able to really understand the dynamic of an aggregation and really know when it started, when molting happened and when it ended. Obviously, that's one one year worth of data. So we're really keen for everyone to get to keep getting involved and submitting their sighting. So we keep on getting this kind of, of um, yeah, this kind of observation and information about um, the aggregation. And through the photos that people have submitted, we also get a better idea of the predators that are around and other species that might benefit from the spider crab being around. Have so, you found, Elodie, have you found the patterns repeated this year that you found last year through the citizen science observations? Um, not, not quite. So this year, I think the spider crabs that we know of have been in deeper water and only probably a handful of people that have been very privileged have been able to see them. Um, so it's not, they haven't been at sites that were, you know, popular like Rye and Blagary, at least not that we know of. So, um, yeah, there have been less observations just because the spider crabs were not 
not as accessible this year. So part two uh, has a look at the ecological assessment. This is really the tech part of your study. So it's involving the remote underwater video, um, the tags that were put on the backs of the crabs and and how they were tracked by satellite, um, this stereo-operated diver video as well. What did part two reveal about what the spider crabs have been up to? Yeah, so for the first time we were able to, through the tagging, able to get a better idea of the movement of the crabs after the aggregation Actually, I'm saying get a better idea. We had no idea to start with. So it could always be better. Um, but, yeah, so the spider crabs, we detected 27 of them out of the 50 crabs that were tagged. And I guess what's perhaps a little unexpected, if, if the theory is that they leave the bay, is that the spider crabs were actually detected within the bay. Um, still about sort of five, six months after the aggregation, at least some of them were, and uh, and they were detected sort of in the south part of the bay. So they didn't quite, you know, they didn't move around. Uh, they didn't sort of go to the, the eastern side, so Ryan Blake or any, perhaps we could have expected them to be there, but they're stuck on the southern part of the bay. So that's, yeah, again, you know, it'd be really good to get funding to keep on doing this kind of work and compare if we get an aggregation from somewhere else, you know, so seeing if they stay on their part of the base, so to speak, and, and how that sort of dynamics work. Um, so that was one aspect. With the um, toad videos, so we, we um, yeah, we did some surveys where we recorded uh, what, were, what was happening in transects, so we swam you know, in straight lines and just recorded some video and then reviewed the footage. So that was the first time we could get an estimate of the number of spider crabs in an aggregation. So um, I was estimated between, so we did it over three days, so between three, um, 31,000 to almost 51,000 wow. um, crabs. 31 to so, 51,000 spider crabs in the bay. That's just amazing. Hey, Elodie, we'll yeah. have to move on, um, but uh, I'd love to catch up with you again. Um, and as you were saying, it's so critically important that funding continues with this sort of work, that this isn't just a one-off snapshot study because we're only really just starting to begin to understand the spider crabs, especially if there's nearly 50,000 of them in the middle of the bay. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that there are probably people listening uh, who maybe have other interests and, and, and ideas for what they could do with some of those 50 51,000 crabs and we obviously don't want to get into that situation again that we were in a couple of years ago where they were quite heavily exploited. So let's um, let's pause this conversation for now. I'd love to catch up with you again and um, we can we can uh, talk more because there's a, a third part to this study about socioeconomic assessment. So next time I'd love to um, explore that one in detail. Cool. Yep. Um, it's, it's not actually our work, but, um, yeah, I can reach out to the team. Yeah, brilliant. All right. Thanks, Elodie. Uh, that was yeah. wonderful. Been looking forward to talking to you about this for a long time. So glad that we finally did. And congratulations on the report. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Bye for now. Dr Elodie Capras there from Deakin University. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Now, if you can imagine Radio Marinara in print form, it's Great Ocean Quarterly. Published first in 2013, its creators Mick Sowry, Jock Sarong and Mark Willett produced eight magnificent volumes featuring some of the most original thinking in art, photography, literature, music, activism, science and other fields, all of it bound up together by a love of the sea. It ceased publication a few years ago and uh, you can imagine how 
uttered a lie when we saw the social drum roll to advise that Edition 9 is in the making. And even better, it's all about the Great Southern Reef. To tell us all about it, it's our delight to welcome back to Radio Marinara, Creative Director of Great Ocean Quarterly, Mick Sowry. Good morning, Mick. Hi, Brian. Can you hear me? We can indeed. Can you hear me? Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, welcome back. Oh, thank you. It's, uh, it's great to have you with us, and as I mentioned, we're very excited about Great Ocean Quarterly. Kicking off again, um, I've given a brief overview about it, but uh, you can no doubt do a much better job. What is Great Ocean Quarterly all about? Well, Bron, it, it all came about initially with an idea I had way back in the late 10s, I suppose, you've got, you know, about 2008, nine, where I started building an idea just because I could. Uh, had um, probably an issue um, in my computer and um, was showing it to a mate, Mark Willett, and um, he went, wow, let's have a crack at this, and then it sort of got legs, and I'd never been able to do it without Mark and Jock. Um, it was It's very much an us thing, but the, the premise was anybody with an ocean who's endlessly curious uh, about the world, really, and, and that's what spurred it, and that's what continues to spur it. And this came um, pretty soon after the work that you'd done with the film The Reef and also uh, Musica Surfica. Um, mm. So uh, what took you from uh, from film to print? Because it's a different medium altogether, but I guess poses different challenges in still trying to get that message across about the magnificence of the ocean. Yeah, well, um, yeah, the, the films came about, you know, my background was in, you know, advertising industry, but I, I jumped out of that to try and chase dreams. And the film stuff came, you know, in, in essence, it's a, a bunch of happy accidents that continue to happen to me when I stick my head up and go, let's have a go at this. <laughs> you know? So in the end, it's sort of, you know, imagination and, and trying and falling over and try again. Mm-hmm. Um, this issue of the uh, GOQ... I don't know, Mark, Mark Willett came up with the idea. Really, he'd seen something about the Great Southern Reef and said to Jock and I, what about this, boys? And both of us went, oh, my God, because it's a big jump to go into it again. Um, and we both, we've all got working lives. But as soon as you sort of start to do the homework on it and realise the sort of diversity, this sort of natural parallel to the, the, the symmetry with the Great Barrier Reef, I suppose, the Southern Symmetry, and, um, and you know, the... The, the threatened nature of the ecosystem and that being the theme, obviously with Great Ocean Quarterly being art ideas in the sea, it's going, well, it's not going to be all underwater stuff. So we've got poets and writers and photographers and painters and sculptors and all of this sort of thing are sort of adding to the mix as we build it. And, and it's just endlessly, uh, endlessly fascinating to... Um, to do the build because you just discover stuff and that's the great thing about doing a magazine whenever we do it we go oh my god look at the stuff that's out there and the talent we discover and it's, it's a pretty glorious thing um it's unfortunate in a way that print is is difficult these days and we're doubly um challenged uh, this time around because i think when we did it last time we were in the middle of covid and everyone was locked down and bored witless um and um this time around people are under pressure so we really need people to jump on board with this issue so that we can do it because it's fantastic to do um for us but also when they get it it's something that i can guarantee i want to keep forever mick is it uh, like a playboy magazine am i reading it for the articles or uh is there some quite great images in there also 
Uh, it's always a mix of both. Yeah. Um, no, the, the, the imagery, um, we really... And, and that's my department a bit. Um, I have to chase it. Um, but uh, I set as high a bar as I possibly can. And um, always, like I've got photographers now... Um, you know, one guy that I was, I found, um, you know, I needed an image of a, a Pacific Gulf, you know, something, you know, fairly, relatively mundane, but I found this amazing image, but he was diving off on a safari in Tanzania, but he said he'll get back to me with a photograph as soon as he gets back, which I've now got. And another guy was jumping on a boat heading into the wilds of northwest Papua New Guinea. So, you know, like it's, I, I fight them hard and I find them. And, um, and likewise with the artists, we've got a great piece that's um, uh, on uh, Otis Carey, who's a young Indigenous artist, but he, you know, very famous actually as a surfer. And I wasn't aware that he was a painter as well. And when I saw it, I went, holy hell. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Really, really, really good work, you know, and, and, and a young man, but astonishingly talented. What else have you got in there, Mick? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> you got about one minute. <laughs> oh, we've got a we've got a great piece on the Nagari Capes, which is the area around you know Cape Lewin, Cape Fraser, Cape Natural East. Uh, we've got kelp naturally because the Great Southern Reef is a is basically the kelpie reefs all around the bottom of Australia. Um, we've got uh, a wonderful article by Greg Day on the salt and freshwater interface, which you might think, oh, you know, estuarian water. But um, I, he's read me a couple of passages from and it's absolutely mind-bendingly beautiful. Uh, the Bremer Canyon Walkers, um, poem from Felicity um, Plunkett, the eminent uh, um, New South Wales poet. Uh, crikey, it keeps going on and on. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> uh, we've got, yeah. I was we've s- even got a, a recipe for... Uh, for uh, uh, sea urchins, because sea urchin being the main predator on kelp and, and under threat because of um, feral sea urchin, you know, the introduced red, red yeah. sea urchin. Uh, we've got a recipe because they're actually quite delicious. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to the important bit um, about yep. how uh, people can get their pre-order because it's open for another two weeks, yeah? Yes, it is. Um, just go to uh, www.greatocean.com.au. Um, straight into a portal there. Um, the issue is sixty dollars. I know it's, it's jumped up in price, but you know, basically, as I said in my in my um, Instagram, it's um, the difference is a coffee and a decent baguette somewhere, um, and uh, it's really going to be worth it. But we really do need the numbers to to get it over the line. Uh, yeah. yeah so. And I'm, I'm this, is a, this is a pleading a pleading. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page, Mick. Um we've yeah. already put an image up of uh, of a, a mock up cover with a gorgeous yeah. image of a seahorse. So you can um, yeah. click on that and follow those links through um, as I mentioned tomorrow, because today for the rest of the day I will be uh, tied up with the community cup, but we'll put a link to that page no tomorrow. Uh, and can I just add one thing? There also is a link to a, a PDF of an abridged version of the last issue, so if anyone's never seen the Great Ocean Quarterly, they can at least have a look at what we do. Yeah, and I I fully endorse it. I have the previous eight editions and I cannot wait for this ninth one to join it. So all the very best and uh, hopefully this will do what you need it to do, Mick, and um, look forward to the publication. We'll catch up with you and and, um, maybe jock in a few weeks' time. 
thanks so much, Brian, and thanks everybody in there. Always Take a pleasure. Care. Thanks. Bye for now. Bye bye. Mick Sowry, the um, creative director of Great Ocean Quarterly. Thanks also to Dr. Elodie Campras from Deakin University talking about the spider crabs. Dave Donnelly uh, talking about whales, and Ben Francis Shelley about ancient dino birds. Yeah. It's been a big show, Cabin Boy. We got to the end, Thanks though. to you. Oh. Thanks to Nerida also for panelling for us today. Thanks to David. who will have this show up as a podcast in the next few days. On next week's program, we're going to be speaking with Alistair Allen from Bob Brown Foundation, um, Rebecca Olive from RMIT talking about a new event called Everyday Oceans. Um, so much more in store. I'm not sure whether you're back in with us, Cabin Boy, next week. I think I am. But, it's um, three-peat. Yeah, I know. Three Just pe- oh, like it's a sign. mighty megahertz. <laughs> Get down to Victoria Park for the community camp. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.